Welcome to Catherine Flynn's podcast, Intelligent Edge Yoga, conversations for smart, compassionate practice. Each episode will guide and inquire into ethics-based spirituality within a modern paradigm of practice. Whether your practice is yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, or simply living a life full of intention, this is for you. I'd like you to take a moment to consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. Your pledges enable the continuation of the podcast. Patrons will also receive exclusive resources, uh, behind-the-scenes material for instructors, guided yoga and meditation sessions for yogis, and everything in between. This is just the start of something new and exciting. You can be a part of it by going to patreon.com slash yoga and clicking on the large orange button. Thanks. Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, podcasters. I initially started to take a look at today's topic with the intention of looking at multiple aspects of yoga's food culture. But in the same way that there are many kinds of yoga, there are many aspects to yoga's food culture, all of which in their own right could make a fascinating yoga podcast. As other writers and teachers may say, I started looking at many things in preparation for this podcast and all the little rabbit holes I went down kept circling back to the eating or not eating of meat. So today's podcast looks at vegetarianism within the lens of yoga, though we mosey around to other concepts, including a concept from Tantra, Prana, juice, fasting, and why we may lie to ourselves. We don't need to look further than a stereotype to know that vegetarianism and yoga share the same company. I was actually starting to segue out of a long relationship with veganism when I started practicing yoga regularly, though neither yoga nor veganism were popular when I was in my teens. So much so that when I became vegan, my mom, with much concern, said to her friends, Catherine has become vegan. We don't know what it means. We have many reasons for eating what we eat. And so as we delve into why we may or may not eat meat, let's go back to uh, a little bit earlier history for yoga and vegetarianism. One of the early yogis to bring yoga to North America was Swami Vivekananda, who actually I found out came through Canada on his way to the States in 1893. He had to stop in Vancouver first. Here to share the teachings of Hinduism and the universality of religion, Swami Vivekananda promoted a recognition of each individual's divinity within a collective. Sound familiar? Yoga is inherently intertwined with Hinduism, which believes that reincarnation is a part of a soul's journey to unlearn individuality and recognize universality over a course of lifetimes. The seminal yoga text is the Bhagavad Gita, or the Song of God, which is portioned out from the Hindu epic text, the Mahabharata. If you grew up in a Hindu household, you know this story very well. And most Hindus interpret the Mahabharata's maxim, nonviolence is the highest duty and the highest teaching, as moral guidance advocating for vegetarianism. In his complete works, Swami Vivekananda says that those of sattvic mindsets, those who are peaceful, blissful, enlightened, 
will not crave meat, and that culturally we should not deny meat to those who engage in manual labor to earn their living, but those who do not should abstain. While you don't need to be Hindu to practice yoga, they have a shared history, languages, and some practices. Many Hindus, though not all, practice vegetarianism as an essential part of their belief system, and even meat-eating Hindus may not eat beef since the cow is considered a sacred animal. I've posted a couple of photos to the show notes from my friend Charlotte's travels, and I have to say India has some of the most attractive cows. They're really shockingly pretty. So that's posted to the show notes if you'd like to see some very pretty sacred cows. A central requirement to living yoga philosophy is the principle of ahimsa, translated to non-harming or loving kindness. And it's one of five principles on the yama limb of the yoga path. Yama translates to observances or restraints. So we will restrain ourselves from committing violence or we will observe loving kindness. Aside from the intertwinement with Hinduism, where most devotees practice vegetarianism, this is the primary reason for yogis going meat-free. The animal agriculture industry causes tremendous harm to animals and the planet with their industrial approach to livestock and environmental practices. Within the lens of Ahimsa, few of the effects of animal agriculture, including water depletion, monocropping, GMO, corn and soy, the inhumane treatment of animals, these may not be seen as permissible uh, for some yogis on the path. But what if the animals' lives were improved? Would yogis still disapprove of animals dying for their meals? Some certainly do, as yoga has a close association to the strictly plant-based diet of veganism in North America, even though the sister science to yoga, Ayurveda, prescribes personalized diets that can be rich in dairy, eggs, and even meat. Many yogis accept an animal's death to facilitate their diet so long as that animal is honored with a good life and a death that reduces suffering. It's not the manner of dying then, but the manner of living that yogis examine when choosing their food sources. In our household, our general rule for the butcher shop purchases is a great life and one bad day. My partner isn't a yogi, but he shares similar values to me that are reflected in our food purchases. The cost of our meat restrains our consumption for budgetary reasons, and so many of our meals are still vegetarian or vegan. I'm a root vegetable junkie and eat sweet potatoes like it's my job. And Alex would be an excellent hunter if chocolate croissant lived in the wild. We're both fine to eat a minimal amount of meat because it allows us to buy a certain caliber of it from small grocers and farmer direct. And this reduces our overall water consumption and the amount of ozone depleting nitrous oxide caused by raising livestock that we're responsible for through our dietary choices. This conversation may be making you a little bit uncomfortable so far. Having lived as a vegetarian for a really long time in my life and those many years as a vegan and perpetually teetering on the brink of return, I've learned that dietary choices are territory where people are sensitive and they often feel judged by your choices and start to defend their own, even if they are not overtly under the lens. 
On my reading list right now is David Livingstone Smith's Why We Lie, The Evolutionary Roots of Deception and the Unconscious Mind. Dr. Smith's work examines the evolutionary reasons for why we may misrepresent ourselves to ourselves, as well as the social functions of lying. The latter part makes a lot of sense. You wouldn't receive too many dinner invitations in the future if you were honestly forthright about a host's meal you didn't enjoy. But why we misrepresent ourselves to ourselves is really interesting stuff. Turns out we typically overestimate the clarity of our beliefs and consistently edit, update, and reformulate our minds, especially if a belief or memory enhances our status. Think about that in terms of, you know, the need to have a clean diet, whatever that means, uh, and, and a superior yoga practice. Dr. Smith's work includes examples from the animal kingdom, including a gorilla who hides fruit until all the other gorillas are gone and then goes back to partake in the hidden fruit. There's a certain amount of secretiveness and self-investment that comes with feeding ourselves. At the heart of living a yoga lifestyle is mindfulness, clarity of motivation, emotion, and impact. Mindfulness includes replacing an egocentric view to a community-centric view. Applied to dietary choices, this concept can get expensive because if you want to eat meat every day and you've got a certain standard of meat, then your grocery bills are going to be high. Although according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans overall have actually never spent less on their food than they do today. In 1900, we spent 43% of our income on food, and that percentage has gradually fallen over the last century all the way to a little over 11%. Our concept of expensive is skewed because food actually becomes cheaper over the 20th century, even as we perceive it as growing more expensive. And so back to Dr. Smith's hypothesis about not being clear on on our reasons and our beliefs and our memories. I think we hear information like this and we're surprised because we've told ourselves that we don't buy certain things because we can't afford them. But that's because we're in this limited perception bubble, but we actually have never spent less on our food. So we have the opportunity to treat shopping and overall household budgeting as a mindfulness practice and an ahimsa practice of loving kindness. For yogis, the world is comprised of prana or vital life force. It creates and powers every single thing. I used to teach about prana like a monopoly game. You have to spend some to make some and your seemingly endless goal is to go out with a lot of it. Down the road of study, I now know that it's not just the quantity of prana you raise. Raising prana is easy. Just eat a pear or stare at something. That's prana accumulation. Whenever we take something in, right, through our senses, that's prana accumulation. But it's the skillful ingestion and dissemination of prana that matters. So when I walk to our local butcher... I may spend some prana and some dollars, which I had to spend some prana to earn by walking there, but I generate a lot of prana by connecting with my community through my relationship with the butchers, 
supporting their life's purpose, their dharma of owning an independent business, and of course, buying meat from their inspected and approved farmers. My purchase makes possible the ripple effect of the butcher supporting the farmer's dharma, especially those practicing sustainable, humane methods of farming and the preservation of rare breeds. To really challenge a no-kill interpretation of ahimsa, rare agricultural breeds only exist through the dedication of farmers who want to see them continue. We purchase meat from a local farmer near our hometown of Ottawa, Canada, who breeds the big black pig as a hearty alternative to other heritage breeds. And through our relationship with her, we've learned that these giant beauties wouldn't exist if it weren't for her efforts to, to preserve them. And to keep them around, they need to have purpose. And so they are ethically raised meat. She also recently had a fundraiser to purchase an abattoir so that she and other farmers could honor the full life cycle of their animals uh, rather than having to send them to a larger factory abattoir. Continuing on our prana path, we generate even more skillful prana by preparing lovingly and methodically the food that we eat as a family and then coming together as a family over a shared meal. Whenever we think of yoga, we always have to loop back around to the definition of yoga as skillfulness in action. And it's not to say that uh, I'm skillful in action with every meal that I eat. You know, we have a seven and a half month old baby, Harvey, and we really enjoy Andy Samberg's sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And last night we were so exhausted. Alex is sick. I'm semi-solo parenting and taking care of him. And so we ordered Thai food and we sat on the couch and watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It was low level uh, attentiveness and it was what we needed and that's okay. But we save the times that we want to order food. And as my friend Vanessa would say, get floppy on the couch, uh, for the times where we really need it. We can look back to other texts and practices in yoga for the potency of food as medicine or spiritual practice. Chantra refers to the spiritual practices from which Hatha Yoga arises. It's a system of teachings and texts that guide practitioners to see what is real in a material realm that obscures the presence of spirit. The adepts or siddhas of Tantra saw the practices as particularly potent for the dark age, the Kali Yuga that we currently live in. Bad times call for deep practices. It's for another time and another chat, but Tantric practices and beliefs are inseparable from the history of yoga, Ayurveda, and modern yoga culture, and provide a rich system through which many Western yogis guide their practices. The rituals of sexual content that are so titillating to modern audiences were probably scandalous to outsiders in their time. They were intended to flout social taboos so as to wake up practitioners to the artificial construction of our lived experience. Tantric practitioners talk about the five substances or the panchamakaras, not to be confused with the panchakarmas, which are the five actions, but 
They are rather potent substances applied in practices to produce a specific effect. They are madhya or wine, mamsa, literally flesh or muscle, but we refer to it as meat, matsya, fish, mudra, grain, and metuna or sexual intercourse. And I apologize, I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, so those could be a little off. For many practitioners of Tantra, the last, the sexual intercourse, could be substituted with rituals such as the offering of flowers to represent masculine and feminine energies. And we do similar things all the time intuitively. We apply substances to feel a certain way. And now that I've said that, it sounds like I'm actually talking about a very different thing in this podcast. But if you want to feel lighter, you eat light foods. If you want to feel comforted, we eat something warm. We are always applying substances to elicit particular responses. I mention this history because eating food, you know, it, it is a practice and one that has so many social, cultural and political ramifications. So why not consider how to make it the most beneficial for yourself and the planet? Sometimes we apply substances because we desire an outcome different from the balance we actually need. I once agreed to a juice fast in the middle of winter when a friend offered to deliver the juice to my house if I would be a willing participant. I called my teacher in a panic on day two because I was miserable and didn't want to hurt my friend's feelings or break my juice fasting promise. Mona, my teacher, talked me off a ledge. It was February, it was freezing, and my life had not slowed down. I was doing all the things I usually did on a Tuesday, including dog walks, work, and a vigorous hot yoga practice. My consumption did not align with my output. Regardless of the fruits or vegetables in it, juice is cold and light. Only consuming juice is a lightening practice, one that is suitable to quiet times where we want to limit digestion. If we want limited digestion, we need to be consuming less information, including social interactions. Fasting is appropriate for times where we take ourselves out of the hustle. But juice fasting during the hustle can have undesirable outcomes, including anger, coldness of heart, disappointment, and depletion. When we juice fast, we may be arriving at the assumption we need to eat less without observing the actual act of eating. We do it after the eating, as in, oh man, that was a weekend of way too much food. Juice fast time. Yogananda Michael Carroll, a Kripalu yoga teacher who studied with his guru Swami Kripalananda, for whom Kripalu Yoga Institute is named, shares a story about his teacher. Swami Kripalu suspected that he may be eating too much, and so he ate one bite less at each meal. Chewing thoughtfully and treating his eating much like the rest of his yoga practice in life, he gradually reduced bites until his cultivated awareness allowed him to arrive at exactly the amount of food to satiate his appetite. He started where he was and gradually reduced through a gentler process of reduction and observation. Back to juice for a moment, though. Another time I attempted a juice-filled existence, I borrowed a good quality juicer from a friend, and I lost interest after a week. 
I was stunned by the quantity of vegetables required for the juices, especially for the green juices I was persuaded would take me to the next level. Whatever that level was, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure I thought I would be skinnier and happier on it. Though I'm not delving into Ayurveda's take on digestion and food too much here, Ayurveda wants you to chew your food. It's an important part of the digestion process that triggers a cascade of effects in your nervous, endocrine, and digestive systems. And yoga food culture undeniably has a lot of food that does not require chewing. Chia pudding, smoothies and smoothie bowls, juices, etc. In the show notes, I have linked to an article expanding on all the reasons it's good to chew your food. And while we're on smoothie bowls, it's also okay to eat simple food. Recently, I posted to Instagram, which by the way, if you want to find me there, it's all Intelligent Edge Yoga on Instagram, on Facebook, on the internet, Intelligent Edge Yoga. And I posted a a picture of my oatmeal and I, I tried to make it look good. I mean, I think we can all imagine how unattractive a bowl of oatmeal can be, but I, I sprinkled the buckwheat groats in an artistic way and, you know, tried to drizzle almond butter so that it was the most attractive formation of almond butter I could muster. And I did that because, you know, I follow a lot of yogis and, and uh, vegan chefs and healthy, conscious living people. And I look at these smoothie bowl photos and like so many other photos I see, I often think about the process behind the smoothie bowl photos. And I wonder, you know, how many people have had bad days because they too wanted to do a smoothie bowl post and the smoothie bowl just wasn't the right color or, you know, they bought bee pollen just to get a rainbow right and it it didn't exactly pan out for them. And I wonder how much unnecessary suffering is there in the world because of smoothie bowls. So here it is. Here's your Ayurvedic permission to skip the smoothie bowl, uh, unless it's got crunchy things in it because you have to chew those and Ayurveda likes you to chew your food and just go with something, something simple and nourishing. And in this climate, go for something warm. We eat what we eat for many reasons, but my relationship with food has evolved because of my yoga. Most of us on this path are steeped in a fitness culture fueled with incentives for individual gain. One of the reasons I love Ayurveda is the individuation of routine, but on the yogic path, we're trying to reduce harm to ourselves, others, and the planet. Our food choices are inextricably linked to ecology, so much so that The Atlantic ran an article recently saying that if Americans replaced beef, just beef, not all meat, just beef, with beans in their diets, then the U.S. could probably reach their emissions reductions goals. You know, that is no small feat. And it gets really interesting when you think about from a a yogic philosophy perspective, meat is associated to a competitive, judgmental, aggressive mindset. The overconsumption of meat makes one rajasic, the quality of energy you know, associated with upward moving energy and uh, erratic action. And so if we want to act mindfully, we need to limit our consumption of meat. 
if you're having a reaction that's a little defensive about some of the strong language that comes up in this conversation, I think it's important to come back to the component of a yogic practice that's important here, ahimsa, loving kindness. Yes, we want to demonstrate loving kindness towards animals, and we want to demonstrate loving kindness towards ourselves. It can be difficult to hear about what our practice should be when when we're trying, right? And only you are aware of the challenges that you have. There are only ever so many dollars to go around, and there's only so much willpower. Learn from Swami Kripalu's behavior of starting where he was and reducing a little bit. So perhaps you're not going to consider vegetarianism, but you may want to consider a more plant-based diet. So take a look, observe, what do you eat on a day-to-day basis? How much meat do you eat? Where does it come from? And where could you eat a little bit less and then possibly elevate the quality of life of the meat you do eat? As I mentioned earlier, when I set out to do this episode, there were so many topics that I wanted to cover, including gluten-free diets and Ayurveda, the history of chai, but those will have to wait for future episodes. A common translation of yoga is to yoke or unite. Yoga is all about recognizing our non-separateness and taking ownership of the impact of our actions. It's a philosophy of awareness and loving kindness, which extends to how we raise animals and care for the environment. I really believe that the enthusiasm in the yoga community to be really aware of your food's journey to your plate is an essential component of that. And if you agree or disagree, if you like some of the other topics uh, that I mentioned I may cover in the future, or if you feel that there's something missing from this conversation that you would like to add, please be in touch. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Intelligent Edge Yoga. And you can also just drop me an email, Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N at intelligentedge.yoga or shoot me a message from the website, www.intelligentedge.yoga. That's all for now, podcasters. If you are looking to spend some time with me in person, go to the website and you can see some details on the yoga conference this year in Toronto in April, my summer 200-hour teacher training, which includes a three-night retreat, as well as my annual summer retreat to Shanti on Wolf Island. Spots for that one are filling up, so be in touch soon. And either way, namaste for now, yogis. Yogis.